Welcome to For My PLJ Podcast. I'm your online editor and host, Patrick Ho. On this week's episode, IPLJ staff member Andrew Nieta sits down with Quan Huang, a senior litigation associate at Latham & Watkins. Their conversation starts on the ins and outs of non-patent intellectual property trials at the big law level and covers topics from copyright font rules to the role of expert testimony. Mr. Huang has worked on a variety of intellectual property matters, including copyrights, trade secrets, and trademarks on behalf of both plaintiffs and defendants. I hope you guys enjoy the episode. Hi, this is Andrew Yentes. I am a 2L at Fordham Law and a staff member of the Intellectual Property, Media, and Entertainment Law Journal. I'm here with Quan Huang, who is a senior associate at Latham & Watkins. Thank you for being here today. I really appreciate my it. My pleasure. My pleasure. Um, can you tell us a bit about yourself and how you ended up at the firm you're at right now? Sure. Well, um, I am a, I guess I'm an eighth year litigation associate now. Uh, I work at Latham and Watkins in, in New York. I joined Latham about a year and a half ago. I, I started practicing right out of law school, uh, right across the street actually at Kirkland and Ellis and started uh, also there as a, as a litigator and in the past seven years, I guess my main focus has been just general commercial litigation, which is just any sort of commercial dispute that, that happens to come across our desks. Um, and I've had the fortune or maybe sometimes misfortune of <laughs> having a lot of those disputes relate to very esoteric and hard to understand concepts related to soft IP. So I guess that's, I gather that's, that's why, uh, you've asked to speak with me. Yeah, that's that's correct. So if you can kind of talk about those intellectual property cases a bit, um, how do they fit into your, your general practice and how did they come across your desk initially? Sure. So I'm one of the, I, I'm one of these people who don't know anything about the world, right? I, I grew up in Ohio, uh, basically on a farm, uh, had never really thought about how companies work, how, how law works, how any, how any of this works. So it's been a series of discoveries that led to this kind of like soft IP practice. One of the discoveries is that soft IP is a thing at all. Uh, you know, I, I know, I, I generally knew, I think, what a patent was growing up. I had a notion. Um, and it, I had a much looser understanding of what a copyright might be. I knew it related maybe to music, maybe to what I would have called pictures back then, right? right. <laughs> not, not even <laughs> uh, with, with no C, just pictures. Uh, but certainly I had no idea what a trademark was and no idea what a trade secret was or, or how any of these things differed from one another. Right. The first exposure was sometime in law school. I think I took a, an IP class. Um, never gave it much thought after that because I was like, I'm not going to do that stuff, right? That's way beyond me. Uh, I'm just going to be a litigator and help big companies sue each other. Another revelation I had was that big companies often own some form of IP. Right, and, right. and for the most part, it's soft IP. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, while, while a lot of companies do own patents and, and have you know, purchased patents and, and deal with patents, by and large, your typical financial company or any sort of commercial company has a lot more uh, interaction with the various forms of soft IP. Right. They'll all have some sort of trademark or trade dress if, if they're doing well. <laughs> right. If, if they're not doing well, well, even then, you know, they would have it. 
uh, and that they're all going to deal with some sort of copy, right, that they write. Um, they're also going to deal with promotional materials that involve copywritten works, pictures, stock photos. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of them, uh, this, is, this is probably the biggest revelation, a lot of the financial companies that uh, a firm like Kirkland or Latham deals with, they have a lot of trade secrets too. Right. And, and those uh, form the basis of a lot of the disputes that, that come up. So that's kind of how I got my start. I, I started as a litigator, and in my first year, we had a massive trade secret case mm-hmm. uh, where we were the plaintiff and we sued Best Buy. For whatever reason, I wound up on that case. Right. And for whatever reason, I wound up on, on the team that went to trial. It was a jury trial, so that, that was my first real exposure. That's the first time I really started to think about uh, soft IP. And the way these firms kind of work is um, if people start even feeling like you, you have some specialty or, or you know awareness of, of how some type of case works, you get staffed on a lot more cases like that, right? Yeah, so, then, so then I started doing a lot of trade secret cases. And then they're like, well, trade secret's soft IP. Here's, here's some copyright cases. So, so that, that's kind of how it, it snowballed. And I've been a reluctant participant, but it, but here, but here I am. Uh, the the funny thing is, uh, there's such a learning curve. I think, at least there was for me, on what the, the these soft IP concepts actually were, because I had no kind of background in them at all. Mm-hmm. I felt like ultimately it gave me a leg up because I was so far behind the curve. I didn't know what the hell any of these things were right. that I spent probably more time than was necessary to understand the core concepts of why each one is important, why they're valuable, why the, why copyright is written into the Constitution, right? Sure. Uh, no, why, why, tr- why trademark is important, um, why source confusion is a big problem for, for companies that, that care about trademarks, and, and why trade secrets uh, need to exist, and, and why, why laws need to protect them. So, uh, long-winded way of saying, I didn't know very much to begin with. And I've been forced to learn uh, a little bit more since then and have, have dealt with a lot of these concepts on a day-to-day basis. Well, that's great that we're kind of running the gamut of things to talk mm. about here. So you mentioned over the course of your practice, you've had to learn kind of the important things to look for in each of these areas. Yeah. So what sorts of things do you look for when you're assigned to a different type of case? So in copyrights, are there specific things you're looking for in trade dress, trade secrets, and certain things? Well... It's a tough question. I think it really depends on who the client is and what the what the potential dispute or existing dispute is. Right. By and large, our clients tend to be defendants. Uh, we're larger firms. We represent larger companies. But that, I say that, but I, I got my start, as I just said. We were the plaintiff in a, in a trade secret case. Right. Um, I think for each one of the different types of soft IP we just talked about, if you take on a case, uh, the first thing you should figure out is, what, well, which side of the V you're on, right? right? Are you the owner or the infringer, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And depending on which one you are, you have to immediately start thinking of the important themes you'll want to establish if and when the case goes to a, a real litigation and a dispute. Sure. Uh, and, and there are consistent themes uh, throughout on, on both sides of the V. For example dealing with a trade secret case, one of the first things I always look at and think about is 
is this an inadvertent misappropriation, mm -hmm. right? Or is this a bad actor? I, I just sent it to my Gmail. I downloaded it in the darkness of night misappropriation. Right. Because those are two very, very, very different cases. Sure. And depending on which side of the V you're on, that is often the determinant, I would think, in, in a trade secret case. Often trade secret cases are bound up with like employment disputes, right? Non-competes and whatnot. Gotcha. People will throw those in. Mm -hmm. The thing that really amps it up from a just a normal non-compete employment dispute right. into a, uh-oh, we're in big trouble, this is a legit trade secret dispute, is a, is, is a smoking gun kind of bad actor piece of evidence. Sure. Right? Uh, them changing their password or, or asking someone else for, for their password to go get the thing that we say is a trade secret. Long before you decide whether or not that thing is pro protectable as a trade secret or not, which is going to be a big part of the dispute, sure. that is like the, to me, one of the most critical things that can turn a dispute around for trade secrets. Right. For copyright, um, it's it's going to be a little bit different. Uh, copyright, I, I think, you know, co copyright out of these three types of soft IP, I think has the most developed case law. Right. Right. It's, right. I think it's the case, it, it's the it's the area of soft IP law that people think the most about uh -huh. and have, courts have weighed in the most on. Um, and there are so many different types of copyright cases that it's hard to say immediately what you should start thinking about. Sure. Is this a case that's really about well, who owns the copyright at the end of the day, right? Is this a licensing dispute over whether or not you've reached some term of a written license? Is it really about whether or not there was an infringement? Did you infringe one of the four rights protected by the by copyright law, right? right? Or is it really about damages? Right. It's clear there's copying. And you're just going to fight about, well, who cares if you're a defendant and, and if you're a plaintiff, you go, this is my life's, my, my lifeblood, my life's work, right? Right. Uh, so, so I would say uh, for copyright, it, one case can differ very drastically and so drastically from another that it's almost like you're working in a different area of the law, right? For example, a case can be all about fair use, like the, the AP Shepard Ferry case, right? Mm -hmm. um, or has, uh, you know, cases I, I've handled in the past have largely been about damages, copyright damages, and what right. they're entitled to. So it's a little bit harder to, to like, identify what, what the pressure points are in a, in a copyright case gotcha. without knowing a little bit more about the, the background of that. About the facts yeah. that are behind it. So it's very interesting to talk to a litigator in big law specifically that has had plaintiff and defendant experience. I think that's great. So... Logistically, not even talking about the themes, you get an IP case and it comes across your desk and your plaintiff side. What are the steps that you take right away, the first things that you do? Plaintiff side. So uh, what kind of IP? Uh, let's talk about, we were just talking about copyright, so let's sure. go with that first. Okay. So one, I want to know right off the bat, do you register? Right. Right? And when you register? You know, everybody knows uh, you, you own a copyright in a sufficiently creative work the moment you create it and fix it in a tangible medium. I forget what the case law is, right? Right. But if I'm representing a plaintiff at a big firm, my guess is it's a big claim, right? Because sure. uh, I don't know how they're going to pay our fees if, if it ain't a big claim. Sure. So I want to start thinking about damages, and I want to secure the most amount of damages I can. Uh, so one path to that is to make sure they're registered and that registered in time, registered before the infringement began 
which guarantees you two things. One is the right to seek statutory damages, depending on the number of works available. If it turns out the infringement, if whether or not if we can prove it, was willing or voluntary infringement, then that kicks the amount of statutory damages up to, I think the cap is $250,000 per violated work. Right. And if you're talking about you know, a, a number of works, uh, each one with its own registration, that, those numbers get real big real quick, right? Right. So that, that's one thing you want to know you have, because then I don't have to prove actual damages. Right. It makes my life a sure. lot easier. It doesn't mean I, I don't have to put in any sort of evidence that uh, the, the owner of the copyright was harmed, the plaintiff was harmed, but it just makes it easier. It makes the threat of uh, the ultimate award much higher. Yeah, makes sense. Um, second thing I get, and in some ways more important as the, as the counsel, we get our attorney's fees if we win, right? Right. Um, under the Copyright Act, if you timely register your copywritten work uh, and someone infringes it thereafter, you can also, if you win on the case, if you're the prevailing party, you can get back your reasonable attorney's fees. This becomes a big, big deal, much bigger than you would think, actually on both sides of the V, but certainly for the plaintiff. Uh, what that means is if you believe in the case and you're the lawyer, you don't have to scrimp, you don't have to really you know, rack your brain over whether or not to spend more time on this. You can go in whole hog if you really believe in the case and know that at the end of this, uh, there's a presumption that you'll get at least some of your fees back. Sure. Uh, now, that's been thrown up in the air a little bit by recent case law, but um, by and large, the, the rule for many, many years, it was just, it's a matter of course. Mm-hmm. Um, it's less so nowadays, but it's still, it, it's not like the Patent Act where you gotta, you got to prove some extraordinary circumstances. Right. Right. Uh, you get your fees. So uh, that, that's one of the first things I would think about, is whether or not they're registered. Right. And then I would break it up into two things. The case you'll want to, the, the two things you'll want to really focus on is, how are you going to tell the story about the impact of this infringement? Gotcha. Right? Mm-hmm. Even if you're seeking statutory damages, case law always says, if it's clear it didn't impact the plaintiff whatsoever, the court although it retains discretion, should not award in the higher range. So you'll, you'll always want and you'll always need to tell a story of the, the, the devastating impact this had on the, on the copyright owner and, and how it's ruined his or her life. Um, that's got to be part of the case. Right, definitely. The third thing you want to think about, and it's funny that this becomes the third thing. Uh-huh. I, I, I think it, that reveals a bit think about maybe at least the way I think about litigation is whether or not there's infringement right uh, how strong is your infringement case is it beyond obvious right is it vanilla ice and in the queen right, <laughs> right, right. Uh, is it or is it something a little murkier um, but usually if a firm like Latham or, or, or Kirkland or, or any big firm is going to take on a case on the plaintiff side the infringement part is locked up and all you're thinking about is how big of a number uh, can I put on this thing? That makes a lot of sense, yeah. yeah. And I'm curious about, so we, you mentioned that attorney's fees are a big part of your considerations moving forward. Is that something that you have to think about in other areas as well, or is that something that is pretty unique to intellectual property disputes? Well, um, no. I think in every litigation that I've ever, ever been on, 
usually the presumption is, uh, you know, we go by the American rule. Right. Everybody pays their, we go Dutch, right? We, we pay our own share. Um, but the, the stakes are always amplified when there's some sort of fee shifting. Right. Whether that's by statute, like a copyright case, or um, by contract. In a lot of contracts, you're, you'll, you'll have fee shifting provisions. Sure. The, the stakes are always amplified because nobody likes to pay money, but n- nobody ever, 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 ever wants to pay the other side's attorneys. That, that's, that's the ultimate insult on top of what is potentially already the ultimate injury, yeah. right? So yeah. um, that, that's something you, you always want to be thinking about and always kicks a case from like one gear up to another. And makes everything that more that much more cons- consequential. So that's a uh, yeah. It's it's a constant consideration that that I think um, you have to take into account. Got it. Got it. So that was the consideration on the plaintiff side. Let's say you got the same case, but now you're on the other side of the beat. You have to defend it. What what are the steps that you take? Right so away? so I've been in this position. <laughs> um, the steps I would take right away. Uh, one. If there's an allegation of infringement, you got to figure out, is it continuing infringement? Okay. Is this something you did in the past and it's one and done, right? If I'm the New York Times and I ran some article and I used a photo and it turns out I thought I'd licensed it, I didn't. I used it that one time. Versus if I'm a website and my logo, right, uses a photo. Right. Uh, and it's still up there. Those are two different cases, right? Um, a, a continuing infringement case, you got to start thinking about how to deal with that, right? Because it's not just—it's not so simple as let's just take it down, yeah, right? Because um, it could play out chronologically in a way where plaintiff sends a demand letter, points out this, blah blah blah. Next week you take it down, right? Mm-hmm. Does that look worse, right? If ultimately you're going to argue that this is not copied, there's a third source, or there's no infringement, right? Does that look worse than uh, leaving it up? And, you know, how do you go about rectifying what might be the infringement without without shining a spotlight on it? That's that's something you really want to think about. Um, That that's one. Two, again, it's damages. Yeah. Got to start thinking about damages. Um, what is what is your ultimate exposure? I, I can remember one instance. This is before I was actually uh, a lawyer. Uh-huh. I was a I was an intern, a law clerk at a, a company, in-house at a company. Uh, and it was a media company, okay. an online advertising company. And we got a letter from... Some com- some other company, which I now know is a copyright troll, uh-huh. um, claiming that we, the, our company's website was using a font that was designed by this other company. Interesting. Right? The copyright so, was for the font. Then. Correct. Okay. So uh, it's the first time I'd ever thought about fonts being copyrightable. Looked right. it up. They, they certainly are. Yeah. Right. Uh, uh-huh. There's there's no reason that they can't be. Um, and many years later, I she's curious, went back and, and checked. Turns out this is a whole thing, right? Yeah. Font troller, 
there, there's, there's like uh, wow. many ways to, to make a living in this world. Uh, one of them apparently is, is font trolling. People, it's, it's a lot like what it sounds, right? You, you design a font that looks reasonably like some other font, and then, and then you just send off these letters, uh, and you say, pay me X amount, and we'll, I'll give you a license. Yeah. Now, I remember at the time we looked into it, and I was like, I don't think these are the, they can, like, how did, right? They're not the same. This came, our font came out of, like, Microsoft Word or something. Right. Um, or, or whatever the, the software we used to design the web. But they, apparently, his font, he had a registration. Uh, it looked close enough. Me being young and naive and a law clerk, I was like, we should fight this. Right? Sure. Sure. Uh, let's let's take this all the way, uh, but I remember my boss at the time was like, "Well, what's our exposure here, right? What are right. the damages? What are they asking?" And that's when I started learning that you know, as as a defendant, it's not always about right, black and white, right or wrong. At the end of the day, um, one of the things you want to think about is your exposure. Like, where is this going? Yeah, I think they were just demanding a couple hundred bucks for a perpetual license, right, until the end of their copyright rights. Sure. Uh, is it worth engaging some lawyer to do that? So, so that that's that's probably the second uh, big consideration. I think a defendant should look into, um, provided there's no continuing infringement. It's probably the first thing you should think about. Right. Yeah. yeah. That's interesting about the. The font trolling. I'm not. My, my wheels are spinning now on what, what what you would do in that situation. Because if you've gotten the font from another application like Microsoft Word or something, wouldn't that be on Microsoft Word? But now I'm thinking about the Sony case where there, as long as there's not an infringing use. So I just think it's interesting. It's it's tough, <laughs> yeah. right? Um, I is is it a is it a defense that you you got a copyrighted work from some other infringer, right? right? Yeah. So and then you're, yeah. you're right, and at that point, is it even worth it? To is say, it even worth it, right? To to go, uh, you're gonna go to federal court, to, right. to uh, right? Because because this sentence used this, it's tough, right? Yeah. Um, and and litigants like that exist in droves, right? Certainly they do in the patent sphere, right? But also I've learned in the copyright sphere. Interesting. Yeah. What's supposed to guard against that again? Again, is that fee shifting provision, right? Because sure. it goes both ways. It's a double edged sword. It should be, and the Supreme Court has said this, right? It should incentivize defendants with meritorious defenses to litigate toward, to the end because they'll get their fees back. Right. But practically speaking, what company wants to do that, right? Yeah. Uh, and, and, and take on the risk and the cost and the expense and the headache ultimately just to maybe win back your fees from probably a judgment-proof entity. So it's, there's a lot to think about there. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. So now shifting over to trade secrets. Sure. Um, can we kind of do the same sort of thing? If you're on the plaintiff side of a trade secret case, what are the th what are the things you can do immediately? So uh, one thing that's the same is you want to think about your damages, right? One thing that's different about a trade secret case is well, one key, stepping back. One key difference between a trade secret and a copyright is this. A copyright is very easy to obtain and own. Right. Right. Uh, you know, people who are unfamiliar with it, you describe what a copyright is. It seems very fixed in a tangible format. I say, you ever taken a picture? You own a copyright. Right. In that picture. Right. Mm -hmm. That's a very easy 
uh, way to acquire a right. Uh, it's just a, it's just a modicum of creativity, right? Yeah. Um, a trade secret, though, is very different. It is difficult to create and retain a protectable trade secret. Sure. That is, in every trade secret case I've ever been in, that is one of the key areas that's always in dispute. Whether or not the thing you're saying is a trade secret is a protectable trade secret. And there are, there are several elements, depending on which jurisdiction you're in, that you always have to satisfy. But they generally go like this. It's, one, it's got to be secret in fact, uh-huh. right? If, you, if it's known in the industry, if it's known to the public, if it's known generally to other people, it can't be a trade secret, right? So you, got, you have to do an assessment of whether or not the thing you're saying is a secret is actually a secret. Okay. Two, even if it is secret, that's not enough. It's got to have what they call independent economic value. Okay. On its own, my shortcut for explaining this is on its own, this has to give some sort of head start or leg up, financial, economic leg up to the owner of the secret. Got it. Um, On its own. So, um, you know, the the classic example everybody uses is the formula to Coke. Right. Right? Sure. The moment that's given out to, to others, Coke will lose money. That's an that's a that's a leg up economically for, for Coke. Yeah. Um, and the third thing is, uh, and this is the one that people tend to mess up. Have you taken reasonable safeguards to ensure that it remains secret? Okay. Right. Uh, that that's a big part of a trade secret case is whether or not the thing is a trade secret. And that does not exist at all on the copyright side, for the most part. For yeah. the most part. Now, it could be, uh, you know, there's some question of if you didn't create the copywritten work and you you bought it or you licensed it and this and that, how much do you own? That that could there could be some, you know, thorny issues there. Right. But by and large, uh, you don't have the is it even a thing question in in a in a copyright case. But okay. it's it's almost always a, a big part of a trade secret case. Okay. Interesting. Now, with that, that consideration is on both sides of plaintiff defendant. Yeah. Making sure Correct. That, that you own I'm it. I'm a defendant. And, right. I go, that's not a trade secret. Yeah. Everybody knows that. Yeah. Right? Uh, I saw this and this and that and this and that. Right. And that's got to be a theme you develop throughout your case. Mm-hmm. You're going to hire experts that say, this is common knowledge. Yeah. Or maybe nobody knew it, but it's worthless. They've yeah. never put it into practice. Yeah. It, does, it adds nothing. Right? There's no effort or sweat that went into it. Uh, but on the other side, we go, this is our most closely guarded secret. We keep this in what, our equivalent of Fort Knox, right? And this drives our whole company. This is the heart and the brains, uh, right? And the blood, you know, whatever <laughs> you want to say of our company. Yeah. Uh, so so that that is very, very, very much uh, a part of every trade secret dispute I've ever seen. Okay. And what I found is um, we've actually done work where we've advised companies on how to make sure they treat their what they think are trade secrets in a way to ensure that they continue to have trade secret protections over them. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's actually not as easy as you think. Yeah. Uh, in some jurisdictions, the mere disclosure internally really? of the tr- so-called trade secret to people who don't need to know it starts to diminish the protectability of wow. the trade secret. So that... So then you got to think about partitioning um, who at the company can know it, 
when it can be disclosed to others. Um, then you got to start thinking about NDAs for the people who do know it, yeah. right? Uh, so, so there's a there's th this is probably uh, I would say in a trade secret case that is the epicenter of the case. Gotcha. Uh, that's the epicenter of the dispute. Is this thing a worthwhile, valuable trade secret that's protectable under the law? I know that the the Coca Cola example is the one that everyone always mm -hmm. gives, but at this point, doesn't everybody already know? the the coke uh trade secret and would it really if if someone were to find out what coca-cola was exactly doing would that really affect their their business at this point or well i don't know i do do people know how coke is made that uh, i i would think the answer is no right yeah. otherwise um because here's the interesting i it's got to be no because yeah. here's the interesting thing a trade secret, you only can bring a lawsuit for misappropriation of a trade secret if there was a misappropriation, right? right? If I independently started making Coke because I guessed the formula, right. there's no lawsuit, okay. right? Yeah. Why don't we have you know, some Coke 2 or some other right, um, bizarro Coke that tastes exactly like Coke but costs half the amount? You would if yeah. they if people knew it. I think actually the formula is not well known. Now, if someone could go in there and reverse engineer it and get it as close as possible, uh, and prove, keep a very clear paper record of how they did it, and it's clear that there's no interaction whatsoever with Coke itself. I think, as a matter of law, you don't have a trade secret claim there, right? Now, Coke may have some other cook up some uh, sure. unfair tortious. Uh, deceptive Trade Practices Act, one of these squishy tort claims, um, but they don't have a trade secret claim. Right. So uh, that, that you bring up an interesting question that all that, that that does come up a lot, which is reverse engineering. Yeah, that, I guess that, right? that's what I was getting at. Yeah. Because at this point, someone's got to have, like analyze the thing and figured that, it out. Right? That that is that is often a defense that's raised. Right. No, no, no I didn't take this from you. Yeah. Right. I just stared at it for two minutes and I figured it out. Um, funny thing is, a trade secret. Let's say for if tomorrow, Coke's top scientist went rogue and published the formula online. Yeah. That is no longer protectable. Right. The protection spade immediately because that secret in fact element doesn't exist anymore. Sure. So uh, it's it's a quirky. It, uh, the of all the the IPs we've been talking about. A trade secret is the only one that you can lose because of the act of some bad actor. Yeah. Right. You can't lose your copyright because of the right. It's sure. it's open and notorious. Everybody knows you own it if you've registered it. Same thing with a patent. Same thing with trademarks. Right. Yeah. Um, but a trade secret you can lose. Yeah. 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 So you mentioned expert witnesses in these cases. When you're working with an expert witness. What kinds of things do you want them to bring up? What role do they play? How important are they really? In, in which type? Of, in copyright or trade secret? Uh, or, let's talk or, about copyrights first, okay. and then sure. we can talk about trade secrets. Um, so, so one, it, it's it's really important. I think you mention experts because this is something I didn't realize until I started uh, working as, as a litigator. Every case has expert witnesses. In every yeah. case, expert witnesses are important, but especially, especially in a soft IP case. Okay. Right. Again, because you're taking these difficult to grasp concepts, 
and you have to make them relatable and compelling to whoever's going to decide your case, you need expert witnesses. Right. And you almost always need two types of expert witnesses. Okay. One is what I'll call a merits expert. If it's a copyright case, um, this will be an expert on whether or not this copyright is, is worth a damn uh, or whether or not it's it, it was there's sufficient creativity or if it's a fair use case on, on um, the, the use in question. And the second expert you'll need is a, is a damages expert, right, right, to explain why it's not a big deal if you're a defendant and why it's a huge deal if you're a plaintiff. Yeah. Um, I'll say this about a copyright expert, and it's unique to copyright. Because people live in a world where they're actually surrounded by copywritten work all the time, yeah. and, and once they understand what a copyright is, um, they'll go, oh, okay, this is just about music, or oh, okay, this is about these pictures, right? At the core of a copyright case, I think there's a suspicion amongst fact finders of what an expert can offer, right? Uh, and and uh, the example is this. I'll go back to my Vanilla Ice Queen example, Yeah. right? Um, when you hear two songs and there's a sample or a riff that's very clearly lifted from the other song, yeah. people don't need an expert to tell them, right? And if you do the expert piece of that wrong, you come off looking like an asshole. Yeah. Like like Vanilla Ice did in that video. You know that video on, on, on MTV was it? Ours is the dun 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 right? And yeah. theirs is the dun 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 Yeah. It, it comes off phony. It comes off uh, as lacking credibility. Mm-hmm. Especially now as paid mercenary expert to come in and tell me these things don't look the same. Yeah. So one thing I've learned about copyright expert witnesses is you can't do that, right? Yeah. People will have a gut reaction one way or the other. Uh-huh. What a copyright expert has to do is bring true, true expertise. So in a, in a music case, if we're fighting over infringement, they, 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 it should look like they've come at it from a, a musically analytical way to prove what was in, what your gut reaction was, right? right. To reinforce, right. instead of just telling them. Um, I'm trying to, good example, I've, I've done a lot of stock photo cases, as I think we've said. Um, one of the things we did with, with our expert was we hired uh, one of like the preeminent experts in the world on stock photos, okay. who, who's like edited something like four million stock photos in her life. Um, and her testimony was all about how much the plaintiff's photos were worth, and in this case, they were not worth very much at all, right? Yeah. There's a couple ways you could do that. You could just have her say, I've looked at these, and I, they're not worth anything, blah, blah, yeah. blah. We didn't find that very compelling, so we, we asked her, her name's Ellen, said, Ellen, can you go and find similar photos that are out there now mm-hmm. and put them in your report right next to the ones at issue, right? And then... Tell the court, uh, how much did it cost to buy a royalty-free license for, for this the photo on the right and point out how much the plaintiff is claiming for the photo on the left? And that's what she did. We, we put together a 200-page report yeah. where she just excoriated uh, these photos, one, and then just put the, the, these new examples she found out in the market right next to them, and they were much better than the ones at, at issue, and she go, and, and we asked her, 
how much did this one cost? 88 cents. How much did this one cost? $1.25. Uh-huh. How much did this one cost? 50 cents. And over here, plaintiff was demanding something like 600 bucks an image, yeah. right? Um, that's the way I think to use an expert in a, in a copyright case, okay. which is people are going to have a gut reaction on already, yeah. but give them expert material, expert feeling material right. uh, to, to reinforce what you think is the right gut reaction. Yeah. Um, very different in, in, in a trade secret case sure. or even a patent case where the, the material at issue is likely way, way more complex and not something people can relate to um, just on site. Yeah. Then you need an expert that, that does much more educating. Sure. Uh, and you can be a little more ham-handed in, in how you explain things. Because I think um, that, that like, you don't run the risk of the fact finder already ha looking at the two pictures and going, oh, obviously they're the same. Yeah. Right? Uh, or the, hearing the two songs, they don't sound anything alike. Right? Yeah. Uh, that part of the, uh, the dispute is less prevalent in, in trade secrets um, and I would say patent cases. Yeah. But but your trademark, copyright cases, yeah. that's always part of it. So you can't come have an expert come in and say, you, your yeah. eyes are fooling you. They're, 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 yeah. they're nothing alike. Right? Yeah. I think that was the, just to put in my own two cents, the issue with the Pharrell Marvin Gaye case that just happened. Um, I think the defense side went to exclude both of the recordings. And anybody who listened to both of those songs, you know that they're not very similar at all. And so I think the defense's big mix, misstep was relying on their experts too much to point out the descending bass lines and everything that so, was going on. So wait, they, the, the two songs, I, I haven't heard the two songs, the two sounds don't sound similar? They don't sound similar, and in they, my opinion. And they moved to exclude consideration of that? Right. That's the, insane. The defense excluded all... Um, all of the recorded material. I gotta say, that's an, it's I, only the deposit I'm, copy. That if I was on the other side, I'd be doing a dance, right? <laughs> oh yeah, sure. Oh, there. Yeah. And uh, did the plaintiffs oppose that? I, I think they did, but that's that I seems mean, odd to me. The plaintiffs ended up winning and then winning their appeal too, so I guess it didn't matter. But. I would I would say, as a rule of thumb, in a copyright case, you should never be moving to exclude right the two works at issue yeah. for, from from being viewed by the the the, the fact finder right because right? because then like what what upside do you have then that's right? what i was thinking i think they, their theory was if you look at the deposit copy the music notes aren't the same as what's the sheet music of, of the other one and that's i think that's a red flag that you're like hiding something from the jury i think but. <laughs> that, that that's like they just gave up probably the most useful part of a, of a copyright defense is that right. gut reaction these things don't sound the same at all right yeah make the other side work through their experts through whoever to prove exactly. to these jur jurors uh, that, that these two things are alike when it, they don't sound the same right, right? Uh, that that's it well that, that to yeah. me I, and i don't know the facts of the case but yeah. it seems like a big tactical blunder yeah that, um that was my thinking too yeah. obviously great lawyers on, on both sides but i i, I don't know man <laughs> i don't know i listened to both sides i listened yeah. to both songs and i was like these don't seem similar to me but reasonable minds i guess could differ on <laughs> to me that's where uh, if, if the case is about infringement and it's music or it's imagery, you gotta start with the gut reaction, yeah. right? On both sides, to assess your case and to prosecute your case or defend it, you gotta think about that gut reaction of the person walking around on the street. That's why you do jury tests, that's why you do, um, uh, you know, uh, 
that's something you got to think about well in advance. Um, it seems odd. It seems odd that a defendant would do that. Right. Because even if they sounded the same, right? Even if they really sounded the same, and you thought it was to your tactical advantage to not let the jury hear that, if you lose that, looks bad. Yeah. Right. Even if you win that, looks weird. Feels yeah. weird. Right. And you're just relying on these experts. Um, but I don't know. That that does not seem like something I would have advised the, yeah. the defendant to do. Now, before we move on from this topic, just one more thing. You mentioned jury tests just now. Um, what does that entail? Um, so uh, sometimes in a case, especially, especially if it's a, a jury case, and sometimes even when it's not a jury case, um, people will do mock jury tests. Uh-huh. Uh, and... and what that entails is if you know your your dispute is going to be in Tampa, Florida, uh-huh. right? And you live in Manhattan like I do. You should be wary of, of knowing or thinking you know exactly how the typical Tampa resident may, who may wind up on your jury uh, will react to the themes of your case or the themes of the other side's case. So um, what law firms and, and, and litigants will do is hire companies and firms where the only thing they do is they run jury testing. They will bring you down to the locale. They, I don't know how they do it, but they reach out in the community and they find groups of people. Yeah. And then you go and you present a slimmed down version of your case and someone else on your team presents a slimmed down version of the other side's case. Uh, if you have video tape des- uh, deposition testimony of, of the witnesses. You play uh, the relevant videotape and you get reactions. You see what the jurors think is important, think is stupid, think makes sense, what's compelling, what's not compelling, who they like, who they don't like, who they think is a skis, right? Who they think is, is very credible. Uh-huh. Um, that can at times be very, very, very valuable information on what's going to work and what's not going to work what you're still missing in the case, what you need to reinforce, what you need to step back on, uh, who on your team should be standing up and doing parts of the case, yeah. uh, whether or not the experts you've hired come off well, right? Uh, it, it, it can be very, very useful insight. Now, it can also lead people astray because for whatever reason, it could be this batch of jurors has a completely different reaction than the jurors on the day of or some aspect of the testing threw them off or right but by and large it's it's a tool that is is used quite often uh when when there's a potential for a dispute to be decided by a jury so kind of wrapping things up here what are the most challenging parts of these cases and what are the most rewarding parts of these cases the most rewarding parts of these cases um gosh i i would say What I like about these cases is no matter who the fact finder is, whether it's a jury or, or, or a judge, oftentimes uh, what your role as the litigator is, is to be the educator, right? To describe what are otherwise, as I said at the outset, kind of esoteric concepts of IP, yeah. right? To... Someone who's probably never thought about it in their lives. Sure. 
and why it makes sense. And, and the whole game becomes whether or not you can distill these esoteric legal concepts into relatable, folksy, no-duh concepts. Yeah. Um, and that act, you know, generally good litigators take complex ideas and simplify them. Yeah. But it's, it's all the more important um, in, in these soft IP cases because I think if you don't, if you don't do it, you run the real risk of the fact finder, no matter which side of the V you're on, going, so what, to what you say, right? So what? They took yeah. your picture. What's the big deal, right? So what? Uh, or, or so what, uh, you know, who cares, if, what, who cares if you own the copyright in, in something? What does that mean to me, right? Um, it, in, in soft IP cases, that aspect of litigation is amplified a lot more than, say, for example, a, a big dispute over a promissory note, right? right? Um, and, and figuring out how to make it relatable, um, figuring out how to make your position uh, seem like it has the moral high ground, yeah, uh, is is probably. Far more interesting in, in 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 these soft IP cases than than uh, than your typical commercial dispute, which is why I think I've I've, I've continued to do them. Yeah. Uh, at some point, you know, I, I was doing it unwillingly. At some point, that that stops being <laughs> right. Uh, defensible, right? right. Um, nowadays, I enjoy doing these cases because, as I said in the beginning, I've spent so much time taking my knowledge of of these types of cases from zero to, to whatever the hell it is now that, that I feel like I can, one thing I can add is, is distilling down why it matters sure. to, to the, to the fact finder. I think that's a, that's a real interesting part of these cases. Yeah. It sounds like that's also the most challenging thing that is to both of those. Yes. Things. Yeah. <laughs> when you see these cases litigated poorly, it's, the, it's when they, the, the lawyer who I'm sure will understand the legal concepts, they can't bring it back. Yeah. And, and explain it or relate it in a way to the fact finder that is compelling yeah. and understandable. That, you see it all the time. I, I've, seen, I've seen soft IP cases go off the rails both ways. Yeah. And that's almost always the mistake is, is um, people have not spent enough time bringing this back to earth in a way that people walking around who don't think about this on a daily basis will go, yeah, no doubt they're right. Yeah. Yeah, well, thank you for sitting down. This has been sure. very enlightening and interesting, and I really yeah. appreciate it. We'll uh, continue our conversation when you come back to Lake. That's definitely. Thanks. All right. The Forum Intellectual Property Media and Entertainment Law Journal is a publication staffed by the students of Fordham Law School. Our faculty moderator is Mark Patterson. Our Volume 29 Editor-in-Chief is Jeffrey Greenwood. Our managing editor is Michael Rivera. A special thanks to the host of this week's show, Andrew Nieves, and the special guest, Quan Huang. Please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts so you don't miss a single episode. You can follow us on our Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram accounts at ForumIPLJ. You can also visit our website at ForumIPLJ.org for daily content. I am your online editor, Patrick Ho. Thank you for listening, and see you next week.